Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and yes, in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. And frighteningly imagined creatures. Ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, little secret for you, it's my birthday. Yay! Anyways, I'm doing stories about the things that I like to hear about, so I hope you guys will enjoy them as well. So it's kind of my birthday present to you. Anyways, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game, and as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say demon, that's going to be a single shot. And every time I say possession, that's going to be a double shot. All right, we've got our business end out of the way, so we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. And today, the story is going to be talking demons, death, and the strange tale of one Michael Taylor. But before we get to the bulk of today's story... I have a little ghost story to whet your appetites, my darlings. So our very first part is going to be remembering Nellie Butler, America's very first ghost story. It was August 9th, 1799, when Abner Blasdell first heard the knocking noises in his house in Myakisport, Maine. And on January the 2nd of 1800, both Abner and his daughter, heard a woman's voice coming from the cellar. The voice said, I'm the dead wife of Captain George Butler, born Nellie Hooper. Nellie Butler thus became what many believe is America's first documented ghost. David Hooper, Nellie's father, lived about five miles away from the Blasdell home, so Abner sent for him. Mr. Hooper was skeptical, but very curious. After walking the five miles through a raging snowstorm, Hooper joined Abner in the cellar. And once again, Nellie spoke. And Mr. Hooper, well, he became a believer. He says, She gave such clear and irresistible tokens of her being the spirit of my own daughter as gave me no less satisfaction than admiration and delight. Soon after her father returned home, Nellie appeared visually for the first time to Abner's son, Paul. Terrified, he ran home, reporting that he was walking through the fields and was chased by the apparition that floated behind him. That night, Nellie scolded Paul for not speaking to her when he saw her. By February of 1800, Nellie was becoming famous around Myakisport and the surrounding towns. People crowded into the Blasdell home to see and hear her. A female witness described her appearance as, 
and I quote, at first the apparition was a mere mass of light, then it grew into a personal form about as tall as myself, and the glow from the apparition had a constant tremulous motion. At last the personal form became shapeless, expanded every way, and then vanished in a moment, end quote. Apparently frightened by the many people that had come to see her, Nellie disappeared for four months. She then returned in May in front of 20 witnesses in the Blasdell cellar. When asked by Abner why she chose the cellar for her appearances, instead of upstairs where more people could see her, Nellie said she didn't want to scare any more children. Before the end of that year, more than a hundred people had seen or heard the ghost of Nellie Butler and most had given sworn testimony to the local pastor, a Reverend Cummings. The Reverend didn't believe in ghosts, and didn't think his, that, that his flock should either. In a foul temper, Cummings strode through the fields to Abner's house. Suddenly, before him was a woman, and he says, surrounded by a bright light, at first her form was no bigger than that of a toad, and as he watched, Nellie Butler grew to normal height before his eyes and he was convinced. Maybe Nellie made her point, or maybe she was just tired and ready for rest, but she was only seen once again after her visit with Cummings. Captain George Butler, Nellie's husband, reported, reported that she appeared to him one night in his bedroom and gave him a tongue-lashing for remarrying after promising her on her deathbed that he would never marry another. So, have you heard of the ghost of Nellie Butler? Well, if not... Out of respect for our very first American ghost, I suggest you dive deep into her story, because it's very interesting. Okay, well, I hope you like that little blurb about Nellie Butler, and I hope you check out her story. Anyways, let's move into the meat of our story today, and the strange tale of Michael Taylor. Since the beginning of recorded history, and likely beyond, one recurring tradition that spans across continents, cultures, and religions is that of spiritual possession and exorcism. Although details may vary, it seems there is a universal, subconscious, almost primal part of us that transcends boundaries of distance, language, faiths, and cultures, and which is drawn to the notion that powerful spirits or other entities from beyond our reality have the ability to reach into us and inhabit our forms. Perhaps the origin of this persistent belief is just our common nature to wish to come to an understanding of what drives us to evil acts, to make sense of what sometimes senseless violence we are capable of. Or could this pervasive universal belief be indicative of something truly bizarre going on past the boundaries of our nationalities and indeed our understanding, pushing through into our physical world and our bodies? There's an interesting question for you. Whatever the case may be, cases of possession by entities unknown offer fascinating glimpses into madness, the darkness of man, and the possibility of inscrutable ominous forces that wish to do us harm. One case that is particularly violent happened in 1974, in which a peaceful family man was either overcome by inner demons, or literal ones, and went on to commit a barbaric murder that would shock the nation. 
the quiet town of Osset, near West Yorkshire, England, wouldn't strike most as the sort of place where a sensational bloody murder and talk of exorcism and rampaging malevolent demons would erupt. Yet, it is here, in this sleepy town of 17,000, where our sinister story begins. In 1974, 31-year-old Michael Taylor, his wife Christine, their five children, and their poodle called Osset home. Their family was considered mostly a cheerful and happy one by their neighbors, with Michael described as a generally kind, mild-mannered, and loving father and husband, although he was sometimes prone to minor bouts of depression due to a severe back injury that had left him with chronic pain and an inability to find long-term employment. Otherwise, there was no indication that anything was amiss or unusual in the Taylor household, and neighbors would later report that the sound of laughter and joy emanating from the home was quite common. Although Osset had a population that was highly religious, with most regularly attending church, the Taylors had never been particularly devout, and they mostly skipped church services held near where they lived. Perhaps it was this apparent lack of interest in religion that prompted a friend of Taylor's, Barbara Wardman, to introduce him to a church group called the Christian Fellowship Group, which was led by 21-year-old Marie Robinson. The previously non-religious Michael began to attend regular meetings of the group, became acquainted with their teachings, and quickly fell under the spell of the charismatic preacher Robinson. In fact, it soon became clear that Michael had become rather enamored with the young woman and began spending an inappropriate amount of time with her, attending more and more meetings and gatherings of the group, and even joining Robinson in congregations where they would use, and I quote, the power of God, end quote, to exercise people of their sins and speak in tongues, as well as engage in private rituals in which both Michael and Robinson would stay up all night making the sign of the cross at each other in order to ward off what they believed was the evil power of the full moon. I'm not going to touch that one. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. I'm going to let that one go. Okay. On top of this, Michael's attitude at home began to change as well, and he was more irritable, argumentative, and sullen towards his family, with whom he was spending less and less time. This was totally unlike the easygoing, peaceful way Michael had once been, and it was assumed that the church group was somehow exerting a negative influence on him. In fact, it got to the point where Michael's increasingly bizarre beliefs uncharacteristic erratic behavior, bad attitude, and infatuation with Robinson became quite obvious to those around him, most notably his wife Christine. During one congregation, Christine suddenly decided to confront Michael about his relationship with the preacher and accused him of being unfaithful. It was at this point where his behavior would take a turn for the worse. Michael is reported to have felt an evil influence cast a shadow over him, and then, compelled by this force, turned his inexplicable sudden fury on Robinson, lashing out at her verbally and physically to the point that several other churchgoers had to physically restrain him before he seriously hurt someone or himself. Robinson herself would later testify to what happened, saying, and I quote, 
I suddenly glanced at Mike and his whole features changed. He looked almost bestial. He kept looking at me and there was a really wild look in his eyes. I started screaming at him out of fear. I started speaking in tongues. Mike also screamed at me in tongues. I was on the verge of death and I seemed to come to my senses. I knew that only the name of Jesus would save me and I just started saying over and over again, Jesus. When Chris, or Christine, heard me calling on the name of Jesus, she started saying it too and I believe firmly that it was only by calling on his name that I was not killed. End quote. Michael would later claim to have no memory of this incident. Despite this frightening, violent outburst, the following day, Michael received full forgiveness from Robinson and a church absolution for what had happened. However, no one would really ever forget what had happened, and a close eye was kept on Michael in the wake of this episode. It became apparent that his deteriorating, out-of-character behavior showed no signs of changing, that his sanity was slowly peeling away, and in fact, he got worse as time went on, alerting several local ministers to the realization that he might be under the influence of demonic forces. You gotta love it. If it's not aliens, it's demons. That's my mantra now. The local vicar came to the conclusion that an exorcism should be performed on Michael, and two ministers by the names of Father Peter Vincent and Reverend Raymond Smith were brought in to carry it out. The date and time for the exorcism was set for midnight on the 5th of October 1974 at St. Thames Church in nearby Barnsley, and on that night the two ministers began a ritual which would prove to be a harrowing affair that would last throughout the night and well into the morning. As soon as the exorcism began, Michael went into uncontrollable convulsions and fits and bouts of scratching, spitting, and biting, which required that he be forcefully tied to the floor. Over the next eight hours, Michael was subjected to having crucifixes shoved into his mouth, being doused with holy water, and being forced to confess his sins, all the while growling and snapping at anyone who came near him. The priests in charge of the exorcism claimed that it was ascertained that 40 demons inhabited Michael's body, including those representative of incest, bestiality, blasphemy, lewdness, heresy, masochism, and carnal knowledge. I'm going to pause for a moment here and say, an exorcism, okay, I get that. You know what? People have strong spiritual beliefs, and I'm not one to question those. I may not share those beliefs in some cases, but I don't question them because it's your faith and you should have your own faith. But seriously, you're shoving a crucifix into somebody's mouth. I'm going to go with, you know what, it may not be the exorcism that kills him. I'm just saying. Anyways, back to our story. All right. These alleged demons did not go easily. Well, of course not each one having to be reportedly dragged out kicking and screaming. And by 8 a.m. on October the 6th, the priests carrying out the exorcism were exhausted and could no longer continue. 
It was decided that the exorcism would have to be finished at a later time, although the priest claimed that three demons, those of insanity, anger, and murder, were still stubbornly digging their claws into Michael and had not been successfully removed as of yet. In a chilling detail which would later prove to be prophetic, one witness to the terrifying exorcism, a minister's wife named Margaret Smith, claimed that she had received a warning in her mind she believed to be from God, which said that the demon of murder was going to escape and kill Christine. She pleaded with the priest to complete the exorcism, but instead they told Michael and Christine to go home to rest and prepare for the next round, which was to be performed the following day. Now, whether there were really demons still infesting Michael Taylor's body or not, what would follow was nothing short of pure evil and stark insanity nevertheless. At 10 a.m. the same day, a mere two hours after they had been sent home from the church, Michael brutally attacked and killed his wife Christine in their home in an incredible, ferocious manner, strangling her to death with his bare hands, gouging out her eyes, tearing out her tongue, and ripping most of her face off in a ghastly display of violence. When he was finished with this dark deed, he then grabbed the family dog and slaughtered it as well, tearing it practically limb from limb. Yeah, I'm just going to give you a moment to go, holy fuck balls. Michael must have made for a grim sight as he left his home and wandered out into the street, naked, covered in blood, his body basically slicked with it, stumbling about aimlessly and maniacally shouting, it's the blood of Satan, over and over and over again. This was the state in which a passing patrol car found him, and soon after they would find the badly mutilated bodies of Christine Taylor and their dog sprawled out in pools of blood upon the floor in the home. Such a sensationally bloody crime, along with its bizarre background of demon infestation and exorcisms, took the normally quiet and peaceful town by storm, creating a media frenzy, and drawing an intense amount of interest to the subsequent trial. So weird, brutal, and haunting was the crime, and the events leading up to it, that the trial opened with the prosecution barrister, Mr. Jeffrey Baker, QC, telling the jury that what they were about to witness evidence that, quote, will make it difficult to believe you are not back in the Middle Ages, end quote. Now that is an opening line. Michael would state during his testimony that he had no recollection of the actual killing, that he had been under the control of evil supernatural forces, and that he had suspected that his wife had also been possessed by demons. During the proceedings, it was pointed out that the Christian Fellowship Group had been more like a fanatical cult influencing Michael with potent mind control and indoctrination, exacerbating any mental issues he had already had, and at one point the group was described as neurotics feeding neurosis to a neurotic. Mm, there's a thought. 
Blame was also directly leveled at the exorcism itself, with prosecution claiming that the ritual had fed off the warped ideals, beliefs, and religious fervor he had picked up from the group, the negative influences that they had on him, and taken its toll on an already wary, sleep-deprived, mentally disturbed man, pushing him over the edge into the realm of madness and murder. One of the barristers, a Mr. Ognol QC, made a statement during the trial illustrating this general feeling of the church's responsibility in the horrific crime by saying, and I quote, I'm aware that it is generally regarded as improper for an advocate to express any personal feeling or opinion about the case in which he is engaged. I'm afraid I find it quite impossible to observe such constraints in this case. Let those who are truly responsible for this killing stand up. We submit that Taylor is a mere cipher. The real guilt lies elsewhere. Religion is the key. Those who have been referred to in evidence, and those clerics in particular, should be with him in spirit now in this building, and each day he is incarcerated in Broadmoor, and not least on the day he must endure the bitter reunion with his five motherless children. End quote. Well, that's a heck of a statement. In the end, Michael was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and was deemed to be both clinically and legally insane, after which he was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He would remain there for two years, followed by another two-year sentence at Bradford Royal Infirmary, before being released back into the world. The aftermath of the bizarre and tumultuous trial brought with it a great amount of public outcry over the use of exorcisms within the church, and indeed, this became the last recorded exorcism to be carried out by the Anglican Church. Even so, throughout the trial and in the ensuing years, the chief priest who had been in charge of the exorcism, Father Peter Vincent, continued to adamantly insist that Michael had indeed been inhabited by demons and that it had been an authentic case of true demonic possession. He would say of the perceived misplaced blame aimed at him and the church during the trial, and I quote, I am quite convinced God will bring good out of this in his own way, however tragic it was at the time. If the psychiatrist said this crime would not have been committed but for the exorcism, that seems a rather strange thing to say. People will draw their own conclusions. End quote. After his trial and sentence, Michael would continue to display odd behavior as well as fall into deep depression and make a total of four suicide attempts over the years. In July of 2005, Michael Taylor, still best known for his alleged demonic possession and murder, would enter the news again when he was arrested for sexually harassing an underage girl. During this trial, his previous charges were deemed to have no bearing on the current case. He showed a low to medium risk of reoffending, and this, plus his lack of any previous convictions of sexually related crimes, led to a light sentence of a three-year stint of community service and further psychiatric treatment. I'm just going to say, I love the way that you guys punish a true piece of shit like this. England... You guys suck at punishments. I'm just going to say it. Anyways, what was it that lurched to the surface of this otherwise non-violent man to cause him to gruesomely kill his wife? 
Was this just a case of a man being pushed beyond his limits and ability to contain a bestial nature already festering within him? Did the preaching and conditioning he had received at the hands of the cult-like church group influence him in ways that pushed him down a much darker path? Did the exorcism itself put this will to kill in him, implanting its own demon rather than exercising the ones they claimed roiled within him? Are we dealing with dark aspects already looming there upon the landscape of the human soul? Or are there really such things as demons in this world, which can worm their way into us and drive us to nefarious, ruthless, or cruel, violent acts that we would normally never commit? Can evil infect us from outside? Or is it something that we already possess, hidden and pulsing beneath our controls and efforts to banish it to the murky far recesses of our mind? We may never know for sure the answers to those questions, but the bizarre case of Michael Taylor shows us that there are forces, whether from outside or from within, that can consume us and compel us to do things completely out of character which would otherwise be unimaginable to us, and bring us over into a dark nightmare from which we can only hope we wake from. One wonders if Michael Taylor ever truly woke from his nightmare and with that we've come to the end of our episode and i thank you for joining me here today especially since today is my birthday i hope you'll take some time to reach out to me share your thoughts on the story say happy birthday somebody send me a happy birthday card that would be great Nah, you don't need to. You can always reach out to me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for a future show or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, it's all the time I have for you tonight. Sorry, I got to go and get my free birthday dinner at the local Italian place because pasta, what else? And I do thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio and... Don't forget to tune in next time. And you know what? As a birthday present, do me a favor. Tell one of your friends that doesn't currently listen to Dark Enigma about the show and encourage them to listen. So that way we have more people listening in. Anyways, my darlings, don't forget to tune in next time because you know what? I love you. See you, my heathens. We don't sugarcoat shit. (laughs) This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.